Good morning, church. It's good to be before you all to share from you God's word and to talk and continue our series, our congregational series. Title, the series title, just to remind you guys, is Disciple Makers in a Post-Christian World. And I've been assigned with the topic of technology. Topic of technology. And this topic is it's interesting because we live in a technological world. And, and really what that means is we, we live in a world that is constantly impacted by technology. And so for us to really engage in a post-Christian world, we need to first begin to understand what does it mean to use technology? What does it mean for technology to impact us and our society? And so this message is going to be very topical. I'm going to be making an argument. And, and so the, the passages, we're not, I'm not really going to be expositing the passage, but I'm going to be using it to help us and see how to apply this passage to our current stage of life. First thing I want to do, though, is to define technology itself. Uh, technology is made of two different parts, techne plus logia. It, it literally means the study of an art or craft. And the definition that I googled, and Google uses the Oxford English Dictionary as its engine when you, put, when you type in define technology or define whatever word you want to use. Technology, the way they defined it, is the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes. So I appreciate this definition, but this definition also is a little bit vague and confusing, right? What, what, when I read this definition, I'm like, okay, what do you mean by scientific knowledge? What do you mean by application? So naturally, if you guys work with me, uh, if you guys have worked in, whether you're in my Sunday school or you're in my ministries, you guys know I like to come up with my own definitions. Right? It's just something I do, something, because uh, I, I want to make sure we, I understand what exactly am I dealing with, but also I want you guys to know where I'm coming from when I'm talking about technology. So let me give you guys my definition of technology, not trying to say that I have the right definition. If you guys want to help me modify, help me improve it, come talk to me afterwards, and I'll love to engage with you about that. But here's what I came up with to define technology, because I think this definition here is very vague. Here's how I think about technology. I think about technology as the human manipulation of the natural world in order to accomplish a specific purpose. And yes, I put my name underneath that. <laughs> the human manipulation of the natural world in order to accomplish a specific purpose. I, I want to state this way because when we think about technology, it is indeed dealing with the natural world. Right, the earliest technology is stuff like building a fire, uh, building buildings, right, making bricks, uh, even baking bread is this type of technology. Somebody had to figure out how to grind grain down to its powder form and then mix it with water and then heat it up again, right? There, there's, there's, there's something about dealing with the natural world that creates technology, even when we talk about something like software. Software, in the software world, you, we imagine we can create many different things, but you're not actually creating anything new, right? We don't, when humans deal with technology, we don't actually create anything out of nothing. Software is actually just a bunch of zeros and ones. We're actually using the natural world of logic to build a virtual type of world, right? We're still manipulating the natural world around us. So that's why I like, to, I, I like, this, I like focusing upon uh, or manipulating the natural world, but there's a purpose to it, right? That's the human side of technology. We, you, we 
build technology, we use technology for a specific purpose. But knowing this and understanding this, we, when we deal with something like technology, we tend to ask ourselves a lot of different questions relating to it. And they tend to be, and there's, there's a lot of questions regarding ethics and morality behind technology. And I think that's the reason why we wrestle with it. The reason why we wrestle whether or not we, this is right or wrong, right or not, we should be using this, how is this? And, and so I want to remind us that technology, at the end of the day, when, it, when, we, when we define it as a human manipulation of the natural world, we are talking indeed about tool, which means that technology itself has no moral value. But technology, because we have moral questions around it, there's something about technology that's not morally neutral, meaning it does impact us in a certain way. Oftentimes, when it comes to technology, we ask ourselves the question, are we using this technology as a tool in our life, or are you allowing technology to control our life, right? There's a morality behind that, right? Are you using technology, or are you worshiping technology? And I, I actually find that question, the answer to that question, to be a bit complex, because Technology is indeed a tool, but technology has also changed societies and cultures, meaning technology has impact upon us, and we have to recognize that. I think the better question we need to ask is this. What do we lose, with, what do we lose and what do we gain with each new technology? What do we lose and what do we gain with each new technology? You see, I want us to think about how technology has changed society, impacted our lives, and by doing so, it helps us understand how to use it better. As we're, as we're, as we're going through this message, I want you, I'm going to be pointing out a lot of different things, and there's a lot of different things I can say about technology, but I, you know, I have to choose one specific topic, which I'll get into real quick. But as first, I just want to lay out that I'm not trying to judge your use of technology. I really just want to help us understand what it means to live in this current world with the current technologies that we have around us. Because technology comes with great reward, but it also comes with great danger. In one way, technology demonstrates the ingenuity and creativity. Man, that's an awesome, great thing. But on the other hand, technology can influence the way we act, the way we think, and even the way we worship. And the technology, the specific technology that I want to zoom in on today is the technology of communication. Technology of communication. Particularly, I am interested when we're talking about this post-Christian world, right, when we're talking about our current society, what mediums of communication do people use to share information and to discern truth? You see, when we're talking about making disciples in this post-Christian world, we not only need to know what, what we're up against, but we also need to understand how this world communicates, right? How does this world that we live in communicate? And specifically, we're talking about digital technology here. Because in the digital age, our society communicates through the medium of images. Our society communicates through the medium of images, which is why I title this message, Disciple Makers in an Image-Saturated World. When I say image, I don't just mean pictures. But I mean everything coming from branding to video clips to fashion. By image, I mean the spectacle the person, the object, the event, the moment that captures the human eye and the human attention. And so what we see here, 
If we think about the image that way, then we see how the combination of social media, of smartphones, of the internet, has really ushered us into this age of the spectacle where a deluge of images, news, alerts, viral videos, constant notifications are constantly vying for our attention, constantly trying to grab our eyes, right? Even now for some of you on your phones, your, your fantasy football team scored a touchdown and it's telling you that, right? Because I'm pretty sure that's what my phone is doing right now. Don't worry, I'm on silent. Don't know what's going on. But, you know, we're, we're, it's constantly trying to grab our attention, right? We have alerts going on all the time, trying to grab our attention. And so the question I want to address today is this. How can we be doctrinal disciple makers in a distractive world of images? In other words, how does the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ compete in a world where everything is demanding our attention? And to start us off, I want us to read a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 9 to 20. So take your Bibles, turn with me there. Isaiah 44, verse 9 to 20. Again, this sermon is not going to be a pure exposition of this text. And, uh, and the, the text actually is really simple. The main meaning of this text is that it's foolish to worship any other God than Yahweh, than, the, than our Creator, than Lord God above all things, Lord God Almighty. In this passage, though, we see here the foolishness of worshiping idols. The foolishness of worshiping idols. And to give you guys context, uh, right before verse 9 and verse 7 and verse 8, God here is speaking. He's saying, verse 7, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. And in verse 8 at the end, he says, is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. You see, God here is challenging the idol makers. God is staring them straight in the eye. He's asking him, tell me, you, who made these idols? Did you make them? What value do they have? And the answer is nothing. Let's then read Isaiah 44, verse 90. Uh, sorry, verse 9. Isaiah 44, verse 9. says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God and casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool, and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He, also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an, an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it. 
And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worship it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake bread on his coals. I roast meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? We see here how in the natural world, we are given the means to build great things, given the means to survive, given the means to, to eat, to enjoy. But with these same means, this man here, I mean, this man, he's master over these products, right? Over these, these natural materials. He's the technologist that build all these wondrous devices. And yet this man in his foolishness decides to worship these materials, making these materials master over him. I want us to see this passage as, and apply it to our digital age. And the first thing we want to see here and ask is how do images communicate? You see, idols, idols communicate through the medium of images. In verse 9, it says, all who fashion idols are nothing. All who fashion idols are nothing. The literal translation of the word idol in Hebrew is a graven image. It's a graven image. There are many words in Hebrew that that is used synonymously for the word idol, and each one of them can actually be translated to image. To image. You see, there's something about idols and images that are connected. Idols speak and communicate through the medium of images. Let me give you some more passages as examples. Psalm 97, verse 7, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boasts in worthless idols. Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 18, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For his maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Or Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 14, just straight out telling man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. Even in the New Testament, right, we're New Testament Christians, New Testament church, even in the New Testament, this this theme of idolatry and images continue. In Romans chapter 1, verse 22, it says, claiming to be wise, so talking about these unbelievers who suppress the truth of God, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. Or we look towards the end times, Revelation. In chapter 13, when it's talking about the beast coming out, the beast representing the Antichrist. And he comes out and it performs great signs, this, this beast. And even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. This is a spectacle, right? This is an event happening before our eyes, capturing our attention. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to do what? To make an image for the beast. 
that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. You see, through images, idols speak. But what is it about the medium of images? How do images communicate? Well, consider, consider this very simple example. Imagine an image, a picture of a dog, right? It's a dog, it's, you know, how will you, when you see a dog, a picture of a dog, how do you respond, right? Objectively, you think about a picture of a dog and you look upon it and you say, well, it's a dog. And perhaps if you're a dog expert, you'll know what breed it is, right? You tell, you know, what, what breed it is, what color, you can see it. Um, perhaps it's, you know, in a field somewhere, in a park. So objectively, you can say, say that about a picture. But subjectively, subjectively, you respond differently to that picture. If you love dogs, you probably think this dog is cute. If you don't like dogs, you, perhaps you're, you're afraid of dogs, you'll look upon this picture and be like, no, keep, stay away from me, right? You, you're afraid of the dogs. You don't want to see the picture. Or in some cultures, a picture of dogs would make them hungry. You guys know what I mean. All that, all that is fine, right? All that is fine how you interpret a picture of a dog. But what you cannot tell me by just looking at a picture of a dog, right? If that's all you have, you just have a random picture. You cannot tell me what the photographer's intent is behind taking a picture. You can't tell me the story behind this dog. You can't tell me what context this dog is in. You can't tell me the context of this picture where it's been taken. You see, images on its own cannot rationally communicate truth. Right, images don't offer an argument. They don't, nor do they refute any interpretation you throw on it. You can just say, you can slap whatever words or whatever interpretation you have on the image, and the image just be like, cool, I'm that. Right, that's why we like making memes, right? We just take random images, slap a caption to it, and can be whatever you want it to be, right? It's enjoyable, it's fun. But the reason why we can do that is because pictures, images, allow you to interpret it any way you want to. And yet, though images cannot communicate truth, images do demand a response and invites us to react to it. Why, is, why, does, why do images communicate in this way? It's because images don't provide any context, right? They don't have a beginning to an end. An image really stands alone. It's a snapshot. Tony Ranke defines images in this way in his book, Competing Spectacles. He says an image is a representation, an object that makes space between appearance and substance. In other words, in the image, we, just, we see an image, but there's a disconnect from reality. An image, then, is all about the exterior, not the interior. It's all about stimulation, but not necessarily the content behind it. An image cares about the cover of the book, but not necessarily the literature itself. An image focuses upon the bright lights, but not the structure behind it. An image tells you that it's all about how you look and not necessarily about who you are in reality. You see, when an image separates itself from its substance, when you use that to communicate truth, what happens is that images cannot communicate true meaning or purpose. Let me give you a real-life example of what I mean by this. 
Pastor Hanley, during the series, been talked, mentioned Draymond Green many times, right? Um, and if you guys don't know the story, that's fine. You guys don't need to know the story, but let me explain to you why Draymond Green came up, right? And he came up in the news because he punched a teammate. Draymond Green is a play, an NBA player who plays for the Golden State Warriors, and he punched his teammate in practice, and that made news, okay? And at first, when this report of the punch came out, the media didn't actually make much of it, right? Because it, it was just reports. It was just... It, all these people saw was like, okay, this is what happened, okay? And they, they were trying to dig more about what's going on. But the story blew up, actually, a few days later when a video was leaked, a video of Draymond Green actually punching his teammate. And he, suddenly we have this visual rendering of the story, and it captures our attention. But let me ask you this. Did that video change the story? It actually doesn't. You see, the video doesn't actually give us more context. It doesn't tell us the motivation behind the punch. We couldn't even hear any audio. It was just a really short clip. It doesn't even tell us what happened afterwards after all the, everyone came in to try to break them up. They didn't even show us what happened afterwards. We, we don't know much about what's going on. We don't even know who filmed the video and why it got leaked. Was there money motivation behind it? Was somebody, did somebody just hate Draymond Green, just want him to be you know, tossed out of the team? I, we don't know any of that. You see, the video, even the headline, which I would argue is a type of image, it offers no arguments. And yet, we all need to respond to it somehow, right? And that's why every sports media jumped on it once it was leaked and had to respond to this video some way. They had to give their opinion, give their interpretation. And we spend, and for us as consumers, we spend time listening to that, right? Spent hours listening to these sports podcasts, news outlets, to, under, to try to understand what their take What's your take? I want to hear the hottest take. You see, an image, image demands a response. The problem with this, and that, that's all fine, right? That's all fun, entertainment, but the problem is that an image saturates society when the only way we are communicating what's going on in our real world is through images. What happens is that society ends up losing true meaning and true purpose. When every news and every event want to capture our attention, like this dream on Green Clip, when every news wants to, wants to capture our eyes, they don't, just, they don't just want to tell us what happened. They want us to respond, to formulate opinion, to have an emotional response. And you see, we see this going on around us all the time. This is why we constantly jump from one topic to another, whatever captures us captures our hearts. We, we, and every news outlet, every time media broadcasts something, it wants us to care about it. Right? It wants us to care about it. Therefore, we need to care about racism. We need to care about environmentalism. We need to care about China, about Ukraine, about shootings that's thousand miles away from you. And, and oh, you also need to care about the hurricanes and the floods and all the natural disasters. We need to care about all these different themes. And that's fine. We sure care about it. For instance, with Ukraine, we have a fund set up because we care about what's happening there. And we read about it, we sympathize. But think about it. We hear about the news of Ukraine, perhaps we give a little bit. And what do we do right after that? We go off and we grab our Starbucks and we plan our next vacation and we move on with our lives. You see, the news 
doesn't necessarily match up with our reality of what we're walking through. The news of Ukraine and what's going on in the war there matters much more if you have family members there or if you're in the country, you're in the war zone, or if you're in the refugee countries and people, everyone's coming in and infiltrating your neighborhoods. That's when it matters more because the reality sets in. But here, we just get an emotional response. We give and we move on with our lives. It isn't that these issues aren't important. It's that when information is coming this way, it doesn't necessarily connect with our reality. It doesn't necessarily connect with our day-to-day life. And so we start processing information without context. We start processing information without context because we don't live in that context. And what that does is it makes it extremely difficult for us to discern what is true and what is not. And so what then happens? What happens is that people end up picking and choosing what they want to accept as truth based on their preferences. When images fail to present a rational argument for truth, you become your own source of truth. And so then truth becomes self-made. You personalize truth to your liking. You see, I'm not, I'm not saying here that digital technology is evil or bad. I'm saying that technology itself is not neutral. And digital technology then becomes a medium through which this ideology of self can easily be promoted. And that's what we see when someone you're indulged into, the, into that world, into the virtual world, you can easily lose connection with reality. Let's come back to the passage, and we'll see next how images then are worship. Because this is all fine. Again, what, that whole point, all that was, was to communicate what's going on, what's going on in our world, how this world communicates. But the real issue happens here. When images are being worshipped, in verse 15 of this passage, it says here that this wood, right, natural things that grow in the world, God gave this to us, woods from different trees, different, you know, hardness to the wood and stuff like that. It says that it becomes fuel for a man. And he uses it to warm himself. He uses it to bake bread. And then he uses this to shape an image, an image of a man, right? And it's image of a man, yet the substance is purely just wood. You see, the, the issue isn't the image itself, right? Actually, note how this passage, in a way, celebrates human creativity, right? Uh, man can take earthly materials and build tools to feed himself, keep himself warm. Man can also take n- these materials and create art and beauty. Right? That's a good thing. That's awesome. Technology here is not the problem. The issue comes when our hearts decide to bow down and worship this image, this lie, this facade of true reality. Let me connect it again to our current age. Imagine you guys took a, take a picture, right? You take a picture and you're, you're, you're about to post it, right? You're about to post it and this picture's awesome. It's like this selfie, right? You got a 0.5 selfie going on. You framed a shot, you got the lighting just right and you, you know, you, you pick out the filters. I don't know what filters people use sepia or whatever, um, and you, you saturate the colors, you know, you mess around the, the, the temperature and all that, you crop it, you rotate it, it's picture perfect, and then you post it. That's great. In that sense, I say you, you created art. And a picture, though, if a picture is truly just a picture, just a snapshot that you want to capture, you will leave it at that. But you don't do that when you post it, Right? 
You see, a picture turns into an idol when you post it and you keep going back to check on it. You check on whether or not someone likes it, whether someone responded to it, whether someone commented on it. You end up then idolizing this picture. You created the picture, but now the picture controls you. You see, the ideology of self follows the same pattern. The ideology of self teaches you that you can create your own image, that you can be who you want, that your truth is your truth. In other words, whatever image you want to do, you can choose to be that image. You can choose your gender, your pronoun, your race, your religion. You can choose your age, your worldview. You can build your own image. And, you know, with the technology that we have today, with social media, video games, virtual reality, people now have the technology to live out that ideology. But because this image, because this image is separate from reality, think about it. This image then that you build doesn't actually have to make any sense, right? You can contradict yourself in this image. You can pick and choose from different religions, from different cultures and worldviews, and mash it all together and make this hodgepodge image, and that's you, and, that's, and the world will say that's great. So it doesn't even have to make sense because images don't offer arguments. They just need to please the eye of the beholder. You see, what's happening here is that instead of building your identity on top of beliefs and convictions, you're building your identity first and filling in the beliefs underneath to whatever image you, whatever ideology supports, whatever belief supports the image you want to present. What ends up happening here in this kind of world is that an image-saturated world would lack true conviction. Well, lack true conviction. And we see this played out. Because if you're truly convicted, if you truly believe that your self-made image is your identity and, you, you're, and you're confident in that, and you're good with that, then simply sharing your image will be enough. You just leave it at that. You'll be like, this is me, this is who I am, awesome. And you move on, satisfied. But note that it is not enough. It is not enough for people. See, people... Not only are they just broadcasting their images, but they're now asking society to affirm their image. And that's ironic. But the reason why you're behind that is because they lack true convictions. You see, it's not enough to build an image. You must then get others, yourself, other people, your friends, your family, to now worship it, to idolize it. And if we go back to this passage, we see how this plays out here, right? In this passage in verse 17, it says, With the rest of the wood he makes into a god, his idol, this wood that he originally was master over, used it for survival and for food. And then he falls down before this wood, this idol that he makes, and worships it. And notice what he prays. Notice what this man prays. He says, Deliver me, for you are my God. You see, there's a cry here for deliverance to be saved from himself. And this is ironic because he's the one who created this God. And now he's asking this God to save him. You see how this turns back upon himself? This cry here, this heart cry is a similar cry that we see today when the public seeks our affirmation to praise, when you seek the public to affirm and praise your image. It follows this same cry here. It's a cry for deliverance, 
to be saved from yourself and your shame, to be accepted as who you are. And there's a danger when we worship images. But what happens then? What happens then when we live in a world such as this, a digital world where everyone is worshiping their own image? You end up living a lie. Point number three, how images lie. In verse 18 here in this passage, we see here, it says, they know not. And it's talking about now idol worshipers, not just talking about the idol makers, but the idol worshipers. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. You see, idols cover the truth. It shows people what they want to see, what they want to worship, is what images do. They abstract appearance from reality so that you can make your image anything you want. Verse 20 here says, He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart, a heart that's been led astray, a heart that's been lied to. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Idol worshipers worshipers are deluded. They cannot discern a lie from truth. Much of the reason is that's because of the way the idols communicate. You see, in an image-saturated world, every spectacle, no matter how great or small, is demanding your attention. Every media, every app, every video game, right? They want you to live in their world 24-7. They want you to live in a world where you don't need to discern what's true and what's a lie. All you need to do is be entertained by what they feed you. This reality, what it really does is it promotes the self. It promotes the self. When you're entertained by what you want to see and what you want to hear, you become king. What we see here is that the heart of idolatry Idolatry at its heart, at its core, is a worship of self. This craftsman here, he creates an idol, then turns to the idol. And he, it's weird, he doesn't give thanks to this idol. You know, he made it, even though, it, you know, if you, you would think more rationally, if he had this wood, and then he was able to survive off this wood, and then he creates an idol, he will thank the idol for giving him this wood. no. Instead, he asked this idol to save him, to serve him. You see, it's all about himself. When everyone seeks to only hear what they want to hear, see what they want to see, what happens in this world? It creates an echo chamber. And it's why we see what we call tribes being divided across our society. And when you live in tribes, what happens is you live in a social bubble where you only listen to people whom you have a common interest with. And you think that's unity, but it's not. It's a lie. Because what's really happening here is they're filtering out the type of people you want in your life, your friends, your community. You're filtering them out. You're handling them the same way you handle your social media feeds. We see here that image-saturated world lacks true unity. See, what you are really doing in this case is that you and your community then, your tribe, you're really just building an image. You're building an image that everyone else in your community must identify with, and if you don't, then you get counseled by that community. 
Right? When we think about council culture, you're not actually being truly counseled. You're just being counseled by a tribe that you're not a part of. Right? You see here that there, in the image world lacks true unity. But I want to ask you guys all, I want to ask you all then, what is the Christian image? What image are we presenting? Are we presenting an image that truly speaks into our reality? Are we presenting an image that's simply a picturesque portrait but has no substance behind it? Let me ask a few questions. If you're a Christian, does it mean that you need to have a fish symbol on, the, on, the, on your bumper? Or does it mean that you need to listen to Air One Radio? If you don't know what Air One Radio is, it's probably because you're too young and you don't listen to radio anymore. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's just Christian radio. In any case, if you're a Christian, right, that doesn't mean you should be posting daily Bible verses on social media. If you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you need to be posting photos of your morning devotionals. If you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you need to be dressed in a certain way. Right, um, my wife cut my hair before I preached this sermon. Do I need to be presented this way to be your preacher? Are there ways to act, or ways to speak? Are these, are, these, are these outward behavior truly what it means to be a Christian? Well, let me hit upon this Christian. We're in voting season, right? If you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you have to vote a certain way or be affiliated with a certain party. You see, I, I'm not saying that as Christians we shouldn't be doing these things. Certainly, I, morning devotionals, great thing. You should be doing them. Highly recommended. But the question is this. Does doing those things truly make you a Christian? My challenge here is that, you know, when we engage with this world around us, this, this world of, this digital world with this younger generation that didn't know a time before the smartphone, before the internet, with unbelievers who are constantly engaged with technology, oftentimes we can also fall into that tr same trap of trying to get them to conform to a certain Christian image before they actually come to know Christ. And so we try to dress them up as Christian before they're truly converted Christianity. And you know what that makes us sound like? It makes us sound like the utter thousands of identities that are floating out there trying to convince the people to try and put them on. It makes us sound like just another voice and another opinion. When all we do is push this Christian image without truly what makes us Christian, our message then gets lost in the sea of voices. Let me put it this way. We, we often talk about, here in this church, having a biblical worldview. And, and what that means is that we need to have a biblical understanding of how this world works. And that's a good thing, right? I wholeheartedly endorse building a biblical worldview. I talk about it. I listen to the breathing, and I do all these things. I, a biblical worldview, good thing, right? And yet many times, well-meaning Christians, right? Well-meaning, right? I'm not judging you, not judging your heart, not judging your intent. Well-meaning Christians will try to convince their friends, their families, their co-workers, their bosses, their political leaders to adhere to this biblical worldview as truth. And that's not a bad thing, but here's the issue. You can't force a biblical worldview on someone without first bringing them to know Christ, who is the truth. 
You see, it's not that we need less than a biblical worldview. What we need to do is we need to do more. We need to do more than endorse a biblical worldview. We need to do more than just fight against abortion, against homosexuality, against transgenderism, and a thousand other things that the church cares for. We need to do more than that. What we need to do is we need to come back to the Great Commission and make disciples of Jesus Christ. It begins first with evangelism. With evangelism. Without evangelism, the church then just becomes another tribe in this world. Evangelism is key. In this world that's saturated with images, coming then to really engage, if we were to engage with this world saturated with images, how then are we supposed to engage? How then are we supposed to engage so that we don't just sound like another tribe, so that we're not just another opinion floating out there? The answer it's actually given us to us by God is through the Word of God, specifically the written Word of God. I don't want to spend too much time on the importance of the Word of God because Pastor Hanley spent several weeks actually covering the importance of the Word of God, but I want us to think about this. God communicates to us through the written Word. Why? Think about when God chose Israel. When did God actually give Israel the word? Consider how he communicated Israel. He could have drawn pictures for Israel in the sand, put visions in their minds, and, but he didn't do all that. Instead, what he gave to Israel, what the medium communication that God chose was through a written language. And he did it after they escaped Egypt. Why is that? Well, it's not, there's not actually a clear answer, but if you study through history, during that time when Israel was led out of Egypt, Hebrew, the language, was arguably the most sophisticated written language at that time. Because written languages at that time, many of them, imagine the Egyptian uh, right, icons, like this, right, the, all their written language, it's mostly symbols, right, and images that they pick meaning. But Hebrew, the Hebrew language uses alphabets and grammar. And what this does is it provides structure, it provides purpose, and it provides meaning to the written word. You see, through the Hebrew language, God was able to preserve his authorial intent and meaning. Meaning, his word is his word. When you look upon it, you can't put any other meaning because he has his intent and meaning behind it. It's contained within the rules of grammar, syntax, and structure. And he does that so that his word can be passed down from generation to generation and his truth will not be lost. Even consider New Testament, right? The Old Testament written in the Hebrew language, New Testament written in the Greek language. The New Testament was written during the peak of what? of the Roman Empire. And what the Roman Empire did when it conquered many different lands is it actually, you know, you can debate whether or not it's good or bad, but what it did, the reality of that is that when the Roman Empire covered most of the known world, it made Greek the most commonly used language at the time. Everyone knew Greek. It's the same way how English is pretty much universal here, right, during our days. Imagine how much easier it was for the church 
right? No longer Israel, now the church containing both Jews and Gentiles, different nations, different language. We're now able to communicate truth with one another by using the common language of Greek. The Gentiles didn't have to learn Hebrew to hear God's word. Instead, God was able to communicate his written word through the Greek language. You see, the written word is so important. It's how God chooses to communicate with us, which then leaves us a few implications. Um, if you guys, just forgive me, I'm going to go a few minutes over time, almost done here, but just let me ask some application to this. The meaning of the written word is so important, which means that when we're engaged with this world, there's a few things that we need to do. In a world that's saturated with images, I believe we first, what we need to do is we need to emphasize the importance of reading and writing. Reading and writing. One of the most influential technological inventions in human history was the printing press. It revolutionized the world. You see, reading and writing is not just a skill. And when I talk about reading and writing, I don't just mean reading like random text and stuff like that. Again, those branding can be images. Well, I'm talking about reading through books, literature. Why? Because there's context to it. There's a beginning and an end. There's an authorial intent behind it. And you wrestle with it. You're forced to engage with it. You see, reading and writing teaches us how to interpret meaning and truth. And so when we talk about discipling, right, I, I talk about this with my wife when we, you know, we're trying to figure out how to disciple our son and our future kids, right, and we want to understand, and when we understand that in this world that they're going to grow up in, they're not going to escape technology. In fact, they're going to be bombarded by images and identities out there, and, and, and you can't necessarily pull them out of that. I don't want to pull them out of that. But what I want to do is I want to first emphasize and teach our kids how to read and write. Because then, by doing so, they understand that meaning comes from the author, not the reader. And they can put together then cohesive, rational arguments. They can understand the importance of context. And when they do that, and then they engage with images, they engage with this digital world, they understand that it's not about their response to it, but what's going on? What's the message that the author, the people behind these images and brand new is doing? What's the, what, why, why are people presenting these movies and these stories? What is the writer doing? You see, by helping them read and write well, they're able to do that and engage with this digital world well as well. And more than that, it helps us understand God's word. Right? We're not scrolling through God's word like we scroll through a social media feed. We read God's word within its context and helps us understand the word itself. But second, we also must live out the entire word of God. Right? We can't pick and choose parts of what the Bible cares about. Right? If we do that, then we fall back into the same trap of building Christian images. We don't pick and choose our Christian identity. We need to live out the entire word of God. Because everything here in this book is one story, God's story. Therefore, we can't just fight against like, same-sex marriages while our own marriages in our church are falling apart. We can't just fight against abortion while neglecting to help single moms and adopting orphans and ways of helping out. We need to make sure we adhere to all of God's words. You see, having a biblical worldview means you believe and you live out the entire Bible and not just parts of it. And thirdly, if we were to engage with this world and emphasize reading and writing, 
emphasize the Word of God, then that means we must be patient. We have to be patient. Because we're not asking someone to simply just take on our beliefs. We're asking them to commit their lives to Christ. And that means it takes time to study God's Word together, to walk with them, to encourage them. You see, images demands a quick emotional response, and then you react and you move on, which is why they, you know, in, in the technological world with digital media, they're talking about nine seconds, right? Or they say the attention span of human beings are nine seconds long, and, they's like, and you have to move on, right? If you do a video clip, it can't be longer than nine seconds, right? That's how long you want their attention for. Images are meant to move fast, but when you engage with words, literature, it takes time, it takes focus, it takes discipline, and we have lost that. And we understand that. We see that in our world today. We, people in our world today want to microwave pleasure. But that means when we engage this world, we too have to be patient with them. Because we're telling them, we're teaching them how to do something that they're not habitually used to. We can't expect quick results. We have to be patient, be prayerful, and be purposeful. Lastly, as I close here, I, want, I do want to acknowledge that there's a reason why our human eyes and human hearts are attracted to images and spectacles. We're attracted to things of great wonder and amazement. And it's because we are made to be attracted to beauty and glory. I want to show you guys that the, that glory is found in the Word of God. And yes, that's antithetical to a world that desires images, not words. I mean, social media these days, people are actually avoiding text-based social media, like Twitter is no longer a thing, Facebook, they just want to have images, broadcasts all the time. But I want to show you guys that the Word of God is indeed glorious and beautiful. It's more than just letters on a piece of paper. The Word of God is living and active. And more than that, the Word of God does have an image happens when the Word of God took on flesh. John 1.14, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know this man, this Word of God became flesh to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, glorious in His being. And Colossians 1.15 says, he is indeed the image of the invisible God. You see, the Word of God took on an image. He took on the form of man, and his name is Jesus. And only, his, only then, when we look upon Jesus, do we see how the Word of God looks like. But we see here, in the image of Jesus, that his glory is not found in being the strongest man, but in being found in, as a weak and poor servant. His glory is not found in being the most popular man, but as being a man who is despised and forsaken. His glory is not found in being the most attractive man, but in being a man who suffered, bled, and died on a cross. If you want a spectacle, there is no greater spectacle than seeing the incarnate Son of God, the Word in the flesh, crucified on that cross. If you want to be real, there is nothing more real than our sins being nailed upon the cross of Jesus. If you want to be known, there's nothing more personal than the Son of God dying to save your soul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. In other words, we preach 
the word of God. But more than that, today, the church today embodies the word of God because we are the body of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says we all are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of what? Glory to another. How does that look like? What does that look like? What does that mean that we're being transformed to this image from one degree to another? Paul explains later, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, we carry in this body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be what? Manifested, physically appeared, manifested in our bodies. It doesn't mean to carry the death, of, the death of Jesus. It means we suffer the same way Jesus suffered, but we do so so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our lives. You see, the world wants an image. They want to see glory. Church, let's be that glorious image by living and preaching the word. In an image-saturated world filled with technology, with voices clamoring for our attention, let us not forget the technological medium through which God has chosen to communicate through us. It is through his word. We can be on social media. We can create beautiful visuals. We can build a Christian brand. That's all fine. But let us not forget to ground it all in the written word of God, which is the truth the world needs to hear. We need to come back to Christ when we engage and make disciples in this world. And so then the big idea is, in the image-saturated world, we must make disciples who understand, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed and communicated through the Word of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your written Word, your Word that gives us your truth, your Word that is preserved from generations to generation, your Word which cannot be argued with, cannot be trifled with, because it is written down for us, permanent in its being. Lord, thank you for giving us your truth. Lord, let us not then be afraid to engage the world with this truth. In fact, let us do so with compassion, with patience. Let us do so prayerfully, understanding that this word is a gift to us. It's a gift to the world. Let us be courageous as we make disciples in this digital world as we make disciples in a world that's constantly trying to grab our attention, let us bring our eyes and our hearts back to your word, which reveals to us Christ. Christ is our Lord and Savior. Christ as the master over all creation. Christ, the glorious Son of God, made flesh, who died on the cross for our sins. Lord, let us show them Jesus in our lives, in our words in our teachings, and in the way we live. Thank you, God, for giving us your word. I pray all this in your name. Amen.